One solution definitely does not fit all. I'm talking today with Kent Dix from Alir Connect. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I'm speaking with Kent Dix, who is the current chief executive officer over at Alir Connect. I found the conversation with Kent really inspiring on two levels. Number one, Kent is a really successful entrepreneur. How more successful can you get than to have your company acquired by one of the largest healthcare companies in the world, Alir, which is a $3 billion medical diagnostic and, and healthcare company? So it's really interesting to hear how Kent managed to achieve that acquisition and how he had to build his business in order to be attractive to such a well-established player in the marketplace like Alir. The second thing that I found really interesting about Kent, and he downplays this, but it's no small feat. Kent was one of the first to realize that cellular technology is a great way to collect biometric information. He had actually been working on some top secret military campaigns. And through that experience came upon the idea that collecting biometric information using cellular technology had healthcare applications. And, you know, similarly to how we can all sit around and say, well, iPods were obvious. Of course, we all needed a way to port around our, our music or we needed smartphones and, and kind of diminish what Steve Jobs accomplished. Standing at the starting line, it's not so easy. You know, standing at the starting line, innovators have to connect dots that nobody has connected before. And that is really difficult because while it's logical now, everything is always so logical in hindsight. At the very beginning, it, it doesn't make any sense at all because you're doing something that nobody else ever did. And I do think that Kent really has that innovative spirit. He, he managed to to realize before anyone else, you know, really at the vanguard, that there was something there. And I very much admire people who are that smart. So with that, welcome to Relentless Health, Kent. Thanks, Stacey. I'm, uh, I'm glad you invited me to be here. So it's rare that I speak with someone who has top secret government work on their resume. Can I ask you about that or will I get myself on some list? I think I'm going to have to kill you after that, but um, no, just kidding about that. Um, you know, I, I owned a company before MedApps, which was a, a staffing company, and we did a lot of work for very large companies in the IT space. Um, and when we started transitioning to diversify our company in staffing, we migrated over to do work for uh, Department of Defense staffing and started at secret and then top secret work after that. So I had to have a top secret clearance. I was a field security officer and to be able to uh, qualify all my staff that was part of being placed out at defense contractors. And through that time of being on top secret uh, work and a lot of the stuff is declassified, we realized that the game was going to change as far as defense was concerned, that we would now start deploying you know, more people in a more stealth manner. We would start doing it in a manless, droneless kind of way. Uh, and the resources that we did deploy uh, out there, it could be ships or planes or it could be automobiles. There's going to be a lot of a lot more automation and technology that would be used. And um, it's it's interesting. A lot of the people that we recruited would be people that knew how to play video games uh, as one of the biggest recruits in it that could sit in a, a house or a an office in Minot, North Dakota. I can say that because it's declassified to be able to take care of drones or ships or cars or planes or whatever remotely. But in, in doing that and learning about that, we learned that soldiers need to be monitored from a distance. Biometric information need to be monitored about soldiers, firefighters because of 9-11 needed to be monitored and that so that's how i got from top secret interested into this whole you know remote monitoring of people from a distance so how did it occur to you that that had a healthcare application just kind of the conversations that we started having with people uh, we did some you know some sbirs innovation grants that we applied for uh, mainly around 9-11 uh, around complex things about communicating with firefighters 
that were in the towers and they couldn't communicate with each other and they lost contact with the outside. Nobody knew what floor they were on and uh, nobody knew if they were well, alive or where they're at. And we started talking about intelligent um, sensors that uh, headphones that firefighters could wear that not only could wirelessly link the firefighters to each other, then chain them together so they could communicate to the outside and to each other and know their positioning, but also could do things like take their temperature, take their heart rate, take their pulse, all from getting that information from their headsets, biometric headsets, to be able to gauge if they're doing well or under stress or whatever. And that's where we started at least starting to think that direction. But we also started looking at how we could communicate and transport stuff back to the cloud so somebody remotely could see this. Satellite doesn't do too well as far as going through buildings. The satellite doesn't do well as far as uploading data from a satellite, the latency, it does better in downloading data. That's why it works well with Garmin's and everything else with it, because you're going one direction down. But then we started looking at cell phones, and everybody's starting to, this is back in 2006, starting to carry a cell phone with them and the ability to run applications on cell phones and Bluetooth on cell phones. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could use a cell phone, something that's carried around with somebody uh, wherever they go? good, bad, or indifferent, to be able to take a reading, not even have to do anything on that cell phone, and send the data remotely to a remote location. We started doing looking at biometric information being used on a cell phone, like weight and a glucose meter and a blood pressure device. And we started working with a company, McKesson, uh, to do a small pilot, and we were funded by Teresa Hines Carey through her foundation to do a small pilot that was in Pennsylvania for diabetes. Uh, we also did a pilot for the Navajos as well, for the Navajo and Indian Reservation using our devices as well. But we learned a lot of stuff by doing that first pilot. We learned that not everybody that is entering the emergency room, I mean, I didn't know this back in 2006. I didn't know that 15% of the people consume 80% of the healthcare costs. I just didn't know that. Um, I knew about technology and how to invent it. And hey, I made this app for a smartphone. Let's just give it to everybody and they can use problem solved. But there was a problem with aligning technology with the people that use it and the people that pay for it. And we learned through some of the pilots out there that if I give a smartphone to somebody that is not that 15% that consumes 80% of healthcare costs, that they could be elderly and maybe don't want to use the technology or are intimidated by the technology, or they're indigent and uh, they basically can't afford the technology, the right technology at that time. And uh, maybe the technology winds up in being used for other things like downloading music or maybe even in a pawn, a pawn shop or other places that are out there. So we had to find a better solution to try to bring the right technology to the right people for the right cost. That's really interesting. So let me just ask you a question about that. So when you applied for the the original pilots, what what was the value prop that you were proposing that you were going to use this experience with, with a biometric technology for? So the, the very simple was to try to monitor people from a distance to see if we can uh, see any exacerbation in their disease or non-compliance in their disease or compliance in their disease to see if they're doing okay and if they're basically um, not heading towards the emergency room or eventually going to be hospitalized with that. Uh, so that's whole, a huge value prop then, you know, with the point being, let's keep people, let's prevent people from going to the emergency room that really don't need to be there. Right. Or exacerbating to the next stage of their disease, right, that's out there. I mean, one thing that I don't want to jump ahead, but one thing we utilize, you know, very largely is a scale that goes with a cell phone. And we've, we were featured on CNN with this, you know, years ago uh, with Meridian Healthcare is that when a patient discharged that had congestive heart failure, we give them a simple scale and a cell phone and they would step on it with their doctor's orders maybe once or twice a day. And the systems in the background, the heuristic systems in the background would look at that data when it comes in and see if they're gaining weight in a, a rapid gaining weight in a short period of time. What that's meaning is that maybe they're retaining fluids, they're not taking their medication. If it's if it continued, it would put stress on the heart, 
stress on the kidneys and on the system, and they may be heading towards the emergency room to be able to, uh, because of the problem, the, the simple thing that can occur is an alert would go off with a caregiver saying, contact Sal, see why his weight's going up. Maybe he needs to take his LASIK. Um, and once he takes his LASIK, if the condition goes down, then he avoided a hospitalization. So could you want to just talk a little bit about the, the, the pilots and what happened? Sure. So, I mean, the industry, depending on who you talk to or not, it's still, it's still le- learning. It's still a living organism. You know, that's out there. I mean, we have to constantly keep learning. It's healthcare, so uh, things aren't done very quickly uh, out there. There has to be efficacy around it. Then once you have efficacy, you have to prove the efficacy again. And the other thing that you're constantly chasing at the same time is alignment of reimbursement or incentives, you know, to the physicians that are out there. Those are in the middle of changing. But also, technology is constantly changing, too. So, by the time I find efficacy in a uh, in a program that's out there using maybe you know a smartphone, maybe there's something two years down the line that comes out that makes it even cheaper, less expensive, better to be able to use with a patient that had efficacy two or three years ago. So, and that I think that's the it's not really Moore's law. That's kind of the phase that we're in as far as an industry is concerned that we're constantly chasing what the right solution is, what the right, you know, secret sauce is to try to engage patients at the right cost uh, and the right incentives to the uh, to the doctors. So who had eyes on the pilots that you were you you were working on? I mean, obviously there's a lot of advantages in value and, you know, providing value, keeping people out of the emergency room and and with patient outcomes. But was there a stakeholder that was particularly interested in the outcome of of what you were doing? Well, I I always say the people that are most interested in this are the people that are financially responsible for the patient. Uh, So in the case of McKesson, Uh, When we're dealing with them, they're running a a managed care organization, a disease management organization that was working on capitated cost that they had already negotiated with certain uh, payers that were out there to be able to take care of those patients to try to keep them out of the hospital. So one of the practices they had was to employ people in call centers, skilled nurses, to be able to call the patients on a regular basis to try to increase compliance uh, with the patients and try to attract several different ways how to get people compliant that are out there. Probably one of the most effective, but one of the most costly things to do is to have a skilled nurse on the other end of the phone working with a patient. That's just very, very expensive uh, to do based on you know salaries and the time it takes and everything else to do that. The, the least costly is probably using a patient's own technology. Gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could just hook up to their own computer and and send up information that goes into a computer backend system and then somebody, <clears throat> sorry, somebody um, will uh, intervene if, uh, if a patient's out of a threshold or, or, or generates an alert. But that is the least compliant type of system that's out there because maybe not all the patients um, have access, especially my indigent elderly patients, don't have access to the most state-of-the-art technology or connectivity. So you have to find a happy medium in between. One of the mantras that I constantly talk about is one solution doesn't fit all. We can't take a cookie-cutter approach to healthcare and individuals. Things that work for me may not work for you or may not work for my mom. I mean, I'm going to demand, and I'm a technologist at heart, I'm going to demand that things be done on my iPad, my iPhone, my computer that sits in front of me. I want my doctor visits potentially to be in front of me in the presence uh, when I need to do med compliance or anything like that or just routine uh, visits with them. I want that to come sooner than than later. Uh, My mom, on the other hand, does not want to have technology between her and her doctor. She wants to see her doctor. She wants to talk to the nurse that's out there to be able to maximize the compliance. So we have to try to figure out what fuels people uh, on an ongoing basis to try to engage them to ultimately keep them the most highly 
compliant on taking their readings and following the doctor's instructions to try to achieve the best results in keeping them out of the emergency room in the hospital. That makes a ton of, of sense. So how do you feel like the telehealth that you have created walks that, that middle middle ground, or does it? It, it, it does. I mean, again, our solution or my, the solution that we created over the last five or six years, the MedApp solution doesn't necessarily just address one solution fits all. It really doesn't address me. I'm not really going after the wellness population or the people that may have, I call myself a, a working chronic. Uh, I used to be, I used to be pre-diabetic. I've lost weight and, and, and got rid of that placard upon me. Upon me. Uh, something I wanted to go away. Um, so I, I have done that, but I still needed to have compliance and monitoring and everything else. I'm going to be more traditionally going towards a smartphone and a cell phone that's out there. The things we've concentrated with on the chronic, the 15% that go consume 80%, is that it's the, the solution that we give them has got to be somewhat ubiquitous. Uh, it's got to be um, uh, less expensive. It's got to connect automatically. Uh, it's got to be something that a user has to do very little with. Uh, it's got to be transparent in the background. I, I constantly say, and it's an old joke, that I have a VCR and it still blinks 12, right, that's out there, that the cobbler's child actually has the worst shoes, right? I need to find things that are the simplest to try to engage me or else I'm just not going to use it. It's the same thing for patients as well. Um, you're not going to have a patient that's going to go to a simple app on a smartphone and every single time that they need to enter their weight to send it to the doctor, open up the app, type in their weight, hit the send button, and it goes to the doctor. Now, that's really a cheap app to do it because the user paid for the smartphone, the user paid for the connectivity, the user paid for the app potentially to do that. And so if you get every single person to do that, it's brilliant, it's cost-effective, um, and the data flows up seamlessly to the back-end system. But humans just don't work that way. They may, I may do that for the first day or two, just like I put my food into my fitness pal for the first day or two to kind of see it. And then after a while, as events in my life change, importance in my life changes, and I don't adhere to things as easily as I did when I was first engaged with it maybe a week or two earlier. So things have to be integrated and simple with us. Give you a case an example. When I get up in the morning, I get ready to get to work and take my shower. One of the first things I do is I step on the scale and see if, I've, if I'm doing okay with my weight or not, up or down or otherwise. Um, and then I just go take my shower and go to work You know, after that. Um, I don't have to open an app. I don't have to write it down or anything like that. But it's a Withing scale that's connected to Wi-Fi that automatically just connects and goes into my MyFitnessPal backend system. It can go into a bunch of different systems that are out there. And maybe two weeks from now, I may be sitting with my wife on a Friday night having a nice glass of wine and look, and look at the MyFitnessPal and go, hey, you know what? I lost uh, three pounds over the last two weeks. I've done pretty good you know, with this to track myself. I'm not going to go out there every single day input my weight. I'm not going to go out there every single day to view my weight to do that. It's there for trending, and it's got to be automatically, seamlessly, just to go across. So to get to your point, the one thing I noticed in MetApps from that is uh, my users aren't going to know if, uh, I'm not going to know if my users have cell phones or tablets or smartphones. So, smartphones and tablets are pretty expensive unless they're subsidized. They can cost rate plans of $30, $40, $50 a month. They are, they are, uh, I call them hawkable, you know, have a value to them as well, can be used for other things. One of the things that we realized is that we could use what's called M2M cellular. It's the same cellular that's in your utility meter. It's the same uh, one that's in your car. It's the same cellular that's in your laptop that we built into our device is just dead, I call them dead, dumb, simple, smart devices that just sit there with a cellular inside of it can be a fraction of the cost. And if you step in your scale, just like you do with your Wything scale, it collects the data through this unit, sends it up to the, to the cloud automatically, and you didn't have to do anything except for take your readings. So we had to make the business model work, we had to make the simplicity work, and we had to make a platform 
where it could basically take in just about any device that a user would use at home. And we had to do this all within an FDA-regulated and quality system at the same time. So that's what we did with MetApps. And so McKesson was essentially your your first customer? Is that what I'm... It was. It was my first customer in Pilot, yes. Right. And then and they were interested in making the system work so that they could distribute it to high, a high-risk patient population that they were they had capitated responsibility for. So that was the first iteration. Right. And they kept on using the phrase that they would they wanted their nurses to be clinicians, not technicians. They were using a lot of technology that's on the market still today that are big boxes that are 28 pounds that plug into phone lines and, you know, cost thousands of dollars and they could only put them with their sick of the sick of patients. They would have to send nurses or technicians out to the patient's home to configure them or to retrieve them. We basically, by using this M to M cellular can make not a 28 pound device, but we made an eight ounce device. Our first device was called the health pal that could be easily shipped or given to them, shipped to them or given to them at discharge and return back, you know, within a 30, 45, 60-day period, or it could be left with them. So it was easier to deploy, it was easier to retrieve, and it did a lot of its self-configuring from the cloud and re- required less resource time to be able to do that. So it was like the first burner? Yeah. So it was, it was somewhat transform- you know, transformational, you know, in this where people were thinking that they always had to, I mean, one of the examples that that I gave a while back was we were a partner uh, with Microsoft on Microsoft Health Vault, and we put our Health Pal on the on the Health Vault um, uh, website. And Microsoft actually reached out to Cleveland Clinic to do a pilot. And the thought was, and it's hard to get over this mindset sometimes. The thought was that they would just take a blood pressure device that was off the shelf or a scale that was off the shelf a home medics device or one of the uh, less expensive devices that maybe you get from Walgreens uh, and plug it into the user's computer at home, Cleveland Clinic patients' computers at home and have the data automatically sync up and go into the patient's electronic health record. In this case, it was my chart at Epic to be for the doctor to be able to see. Well, they found out that on the first five patients they went to, they're all congestive heart failure patients, that it took them on average eight hours per home to be able to connect those very simple $59 devices. I think our device at the time was a couple hundred dollars, $250 I think it was, versus a $59 device. But the difference was this device took about eight hours to to set up because not everybody had the same operating system, not everybody had the same connectivity, not everybody had the same hardware configuration. That The first person they came in and took it up to was running dial-up AOL connectivity, right, from that standpoint. So... It was going to be something they could easily just passively upload and have the data go into the back-end system. They called us in to help out with it, and we were able to go to the same five patients. And I personally did this during a snowstorm. The first five patients, and we did them with 15 minutes each because we came in with our own connectivity. It's already built into the health pile. It was already configured to the devices it talked to. It always was already was going on its own platform. It could seamlessly go in the back end for somebody to be able to um, view it in their Epic MyChart account. And we're still doing that today. So how has the system iterated over the, the, the time since that first pilot? Has it changed at all or is it still pretty much the same? No, I mean, that's, I mean, this is one of the things that I, I see that we needed to invest in. A lot of people invest in right now because we're still in a transformational period. The industry is still in a transformational period. It's still in its experimental phase. I would say it's in its high school experimental phase. Um, that it's going out and seeing what it wants to be and what works and what works with patients and what, what doesn't work with patients. Um, one of the things that I realized is that we should be a lot less hardware dependent on this. We should talk to basically anything that's out there for the home. Um, but a lot of people were not concentrating on, they were concentrating on the, the health of the patient, but they weren't concentrating on the health of the device from a cloud perspective. So one of the things that we should do to make the business model work and everything seamlessly integrate is create what we called a system called cloud care. And that's what we've been working on for the last at least 
five years, four to five years, is the ability to deploy devices easier, to do this under an FDA-regulated system as well, to make them easier with the patient, to be able to update their firmware over the air, to be able to do plug-and-play technology. So something like you're a computer and you buy a new printer, it, it automatically will plug in and download its driver and send the data where it needs to go. Uh, in the back end, we've concentrated a lot on the cloud care system because we know that's going to be an important feature to bring this all together. Um, there are others that are concentrating in the, in the marketplace right now on interoperability. So if you have a Fitbit or you have a FitLink or you have other devices, activity devices or our devices that are out there, they want to be able to be the aggregators of the data and then send the data where it needs to go. And I think that's incredibly important as well. But we've, we've really concentrated on the devices themselves. The, the biggest thing that we think, that I think that helped us in this industry to be a key player for the future is the fact that when we got acquired by Alir, when we were MetApps by ourselves, we were looking at the platform and we were looking at the devices and trying to make that business model work and getting the data where it needs to go and making, that, making everything hook up and go, which is great. But when Alir acquired us, they brought in us for the devices, but they also acquired WellLogic for the health information exchange, the HIE, which talks to EMRs and EHRs and, and PBMs and claims data and everything else that's out there to give a complete longitudinal view of a patient's record from data from multiple sources coming in. They also acquired Analytic, uh, which does patient and population analytics to decide who's the next candidate that may be heading towards that emergency room. But they also own companies like Alir Informatics, which is LDS and MAS, which means that we're in 2,500 hospitals here in the U.S., about 80% of all hospitals in the U.S., to be able to connect devices that are in the hospital to the electronic health record and the medical record. And then our major, major emphasis is on rapid diagnostics. So the founders of, of Alir also invented the OneTouch Ultra and sold it to uh, Johnson & Johnson LifeScan. Uh, we also are the owners of the largest diabetic uh, supply companies in the U.S. that are out there. We do about $3 billion in rapid diagnostic devices for the doctor's uh, offices and cartridges like A1C and everything else. And then we have a large health management organization in Atlanta called Alir Health to be able to be those nurses that are on the phones talking to the patients. The reason why I bring this up is because the industry is very much siloed by companies like MedApps that can do devices very well or connectivity very well or have a great app or maybe have a social networking aspect you know, of working with patients to try to get increased compliance and care and better outcomes. But with Alir now has the ability with all the assets and resources they have, they're probably the only company in the world that has the ability to influence their, their patient's care and take risk and have a better outcome with a patient than anybody else that I know. So Alir is kind of a modular approach that what you're saying is that these different specialties are so deep and require such specialized knowledge that it's... It would be impossible, for example, a company like MedApp, who has deep, deep, deep expertise in devices, to also obtain enough, you know, an equivalent amount of knowledge about, for example, interoperability or analytics. So the best way to do it is to kind of create puzzle pieces that all fit together seamlessly so that you can have, uh, you, you can piece together a really, a solution that is, expands to the needs, you know, to the entire patient journey, but at the same time, you've got specialists at every stage along the way. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's just take me as an example. I mean, if I was using the MedApp solution, um, I could take my weight and I could take my blood pressure, my glucose, and my pulse, and it'd be a biometric reading that goes back into, you know, a central repository. I may be able to now print off that report and take it to my doctor and say, listen, this is what my blood pressure has been over the last month after you prescribed this medication. And the, when we first did that five or six years ago, the doctor said, fantastic, where did you get this data? This helps me out in, in realizing whether your 
medications working for you or not, or your routine is working for you or not. And they were actually bowled over by me being able to collect that data that's out there. But take it a step farther now. With, you know, with a Lear in the picture with us, not only can that data go into the health information exchange and multiple doctors can see it automatically, I don't have to print it off and send it to them. It now can go through analytics that can go through and say, you know what? That medication that you prescribed, maybe it isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Maybe you need to be alerted on this. You know, maybe Ken's blood pressure is slowly creeping up, and it gives an alert back to a caregiver so they can intervene before I get into a dangerous zone that's out there. That's one thing. But what if what if we take the other side of it and we're doing rapid diagnostics, and uh, we the doctor runs an A1C on me or runs a glucose on me and determines that I'm now not pre-diabetic but I'm diabetic. So I'm diabetic. What do I do now, right, from that? Alir has got diabetic talk that allows and wellness programs that allow me now to start engaging with Alir to start learning about my diabetes and about taking my medication and monitoring myself on a regular basis and about eating right uh, and trying to find out whether it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes, whether I can lose weight. We have weight talk as well lose weight to try to reverse and get rid of that diabetic stuff if it's a type 2 diabetic to do it. Uh, We can start influencing it all along the way based on not only the data we collect at point of care, but the data we collect along the way so we can start transitioning from an analog-based company and healthcare system to more of a digital-based service-oriented company by offering services and looking for trends before they, uh, in an exacerbation of diseases, before they even break out and start co- being more costly. So what role or how important is the the healthcare provider in, in this whole mix? And I ask this because one of the things that I have heard from healthcare providers is that they aren't necessarily huge fans of alerts because there can be, you know, kind of alert fatigue. Um, right. How do you see that? Yeah, I, I absolutely 100% agree with you. But with any, and with them, with any new system out there, out there there's going to be learning. And in some in some degrees, you give more, give more just to be more cautious, especially in healthcare. But that can cause problems. I always call it the CIA effect. And and I've talked a lot about this. Where back in the Clinton administration, they decided to get rid of all the operatives in the field, and just replace all the operatives with technology. And just to go through and and grab a massive amount of data from, it could be from satellites or from wherever else to bring the data in. But the problem was nobody could glean that data down. There was so much data that you couldn't even act upon it. So we got less done getting rid of the operatives. And the, the initial, this is what I fight with in the healthcare industry on a daily basis. The initial assumptions, and a lot of times it's CFOs that are making this decision, is that technology will be cheaper just to collect the data, and we don't have to have operatives to be able to do that. We don't have to have nurses uh, to collect it. And the problem is that there was so much data collected that they couldn't do anything with it. It wasn't cheaper to do it because nothing was getting done. So what they had to do was do a, a hybrid, a combination of very heuristic, powerful machines that collect data, that synthesized it down, to very minute details and observations, and then have the the operatives, which I'll call the doctors and the and the nurses in this case, be able to synthesize and look at that data and determine who they're going to act upon with that as well. So I think there has to be a combination of technology and resources to be able to do that. But one of the biggest problems we have still today is an alignment of uh, incentives for doctors or nurses to be able to act upon that data uh, that's out there. Because sometimes doctor is not getting paid to be able to go through and act upon data that comes in. I have doctors that worry about, well, what if data comes in and I don't act upon it and something happens to the patient? Am I going to be liable? And there, there are some laws that are in place to kind of protect doctors from that kind of thinking and mentality that's out there. But I still think we've got a long way to go to align incentives to doctors acting upon the care, the data that comes in on a regular basis. I think this is really important, just as important 
as it probably is to ensure that we are fitting seamlessly into patients' lives, it's probably equally important on the other side that we fit seamlessly into health, the lives of healthcare providers. Because what good, you know, to your point exactly, what good is data if it's not actionable? And if we need these operatives to be able to look at and act on the data that's being provided, then we have to make sure that we're getting it to them in some way that isn't 20 extra steps that they're going to do for three days and then stop. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think that doctors, I think they want, I mean, I think they want systems that are around them looking at trending and pointing that out to them. I think that's part of the thing that we've kind of tried to put together with the HIE and with our analytics programs to try to do a lot of the long haul work in the in the back to try to to point this out to them. I don't think they want us to totally replace them, but I mean, I certainly would like to have systems that could come out and sh- and make the correlation and the trends with me. Now, if it's nonsense, I mean, if the rules aren't set, you know, appropriately, and then something keeps on flagging, 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 flagging you know, uh, based on the same thing and you just override it and override it. I think there's a there's a business case study where an airplane was actually, a light was flanking and the pilots always turned it off and the light kept on blinking and the pilots kept on turning it off and the light kept on blinking and they kept on turning it off. And eventually it was on for the right reason and the, the jetliner went down. Uh, and they didn't even know this because they were so in, you know enamored with the light and coming on and just automatically turning it off and stuff like that. We've got to fine tune our systems out there so they the alerts uh, fire off more appropriately to that and I think that's things we'll learn over the next coming years. Do you feel that provider organizations have this in their you know on their radar that the the fine-tuning of, of alerts is that something that you know gets discussed at staff meetings and that people have an, an eye on? I, I, I truly believe so because it comes down to workflow and efficiency. So that's where, you know, that's where the power of some of these systems that we're putting together, you know, is to not only look at depth on alerts that are out there so we can go deeper into what we're looking for, but also fine tuning them so they work for classifications of patients. But it's going to take, take time to try to stratify patients, get them in the right categories and determine what type of alerts apply to those patients that are out there. I mean, if you misclassify a patient and put them in the right, wrong stratification, you could be firing off for the wrong reasons on, an, on a daily basis, which will just cause exacerbation to the care team. And are most of the, the customers of uh, Allure Connect at this point, are they, are they still uh, organizations with, with capitated responsibility, you know, meaning hospitals or IDSs or, or ACOs, or, or are there other stakeholders that have gotten on this bandwagon? All, all kinds of derivatives of that, but I mean, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of different organizations that are coming in and experimenting with ways to control cost and keep being connected to their patients, you know, on an ongoing basis. It could be because they're trying to control cost or it could be contractual as well. We have organizations that are subcontracted by payers to go after brittle chronic patients to try to monitor them on a regular basis. It could be with a monitoring system and a nurse call center and nurses that go to the home to try to deal with the sick of the sick using our technology to try to keep them out of the hospital and try to keep them out of the emergency room and try to triage them before they get there. It could be uh, direct payers that are paying for this through their own programs. It could be providers that are concerned over 30-day readmissions uh, and reduction in reimbursement, whether it's congestive heart failure, pneumonia, COPD, or or MI. It could be um, large employer groups that have chronic care programs that are trying to reduce cost in their retirees like Toyota or GM or Ford uh, or the steel mills that are the coal uh, coal mills that are out there. There's a lot of groups. Again, what I said at the beginning, is the people that are financially responsible for the patients are the ones that, you know, are the ones that are gravitating towards this because they want to reduce costs. The one thing that we're totally going after is the accountable care organizations. I mean, obviously, they're working off a capitated cost 
and their main mission is trying to intervene with the patient to try to keep them out of the hospital, keep them stabilized, and trying to reduce healthcare costs along the way. Did you figure out, you know, were you sitting in your office at your desk and tapping your head and and have a eureka moment? Hmm, you know, self-insured employers might really have a use for for this or wow, a payer could really use, you know, this technology in this particular way. Are are you thinking forward like that or are did an employer just happen to call you up one day and that's how you determined that the employer might be a good target market? Yeah, I'd like to say it's me sitting in my my corner office thinking exactly how this is going to be used and then capturing the market. Um, A lot of it is just a lot of conversations and a lot of experimenting um, over the years. I mean, just deciding what works and what doesn't work, you know, from that perspective Um, and trying to align your technology. I mean, I'm not trying to be everything to everybody. I've focused us down to working with the 15% that consume 80% of healthcare. And with that is a very specific kind of demographic of payers uh, or people are willing to pay for the systems and use the systems along the way. So as we go to trade shows, conferences, I do a lot of talking on stage with this as well. Um, we, we learn about what's been effective, what isn't effective. We learn that doctors don't want any more data or they do want data organized in a certain way or how patients will engage. At the very beginning, I mean, I just, I will see people that come up and go, just got a great app just created it on the iPhone, just made it talk to a scale. And, you know, I'm going to have everybody in chronic care step on their scale with their iPhone and send it to the doctor. It's not going to cost that much to do it. And we'll charge eight bucks a month to do that. It's it's a great thought. It's a great plan, but it's very much misaligned. So we have to we have to misalign with that 15% that consume 80%, you know, of healthcare costs. So we have to listen, learn, and figure out what combinations of things work. What advice would you you have for someone who was considering an entrepreneurial vent- venture in the in the healthcare um, space today, you know, based on this experience and problem solving that you have have done? So uh, it always resonates in this that the first thing that you always want to do before you start any program like we went under to do especially if you're going to invest a lot of your own money or family money or investor money that's out there is when you're creating a, a solution, you know, that's out there, you know, are you creating a solution looking for a problem or is it a problem that you're creating a solution for? So obviously you want to try to identify the problem, identify the gap and identify how big the marketplace is before you even start off on your journey. The other thing is you also want to figure out who's going to pay for it. I mean, I have a lot of people that come across and show me this Bluetooth shiny thing that they put with a smartphone and say, here, I can do this. It looks really great. It's a graph that comes up on a, on a cell phone and we can do this, but they don't know who's going to use it, how big the marketplace is going to be, and who's going to pay for it and how much they're going to charge, right, as well. And that's going to be the first thing that any investor is going to want to know you know, is is somebody willing to pay for this going along the way? So you got to have those answers first before you even proceed forward. As far as part of your, your question is, if I was going to look at my next venture out there, the first thing that I would do is a lot of listening. I mean, I would do a lot of, you know, a lot of listening and talking with people and figure out, in fact, this is the thing I ask right now with very key high-level stakeholders, guys that you know, I respect immensely, immensely in Washington and in, you know, in California and other places that I meet with on a regular basis is what is the unmet need right now? Where do you see the gaps? What needs to be filled in? Who's doing it well or who's not doing it at all? And how do you think this is going to be transformational, you know, in this industry? And then listen to what their reasoning is uh, behind saying that. And you'll learn a lot. That's Really good advice, and I know exactly what you're saying. Is it a solution looking for a problem, or right. a, a problem that really needs a, a solution? There's a lot of things out there where you, they're very interesting and pretty cool, but you wonder how exactly right. they are going to fit in the in the big picture. Right? Do I really need to have an app on my iPhone 
that actually talks to the the Diet Coke machine to be able to release the Diet Coke down <laughs> so I can get it. Do we really need to have that? I mean, can I just push the button on the front of the machine and be done? I know it's cool the other way, but do you really need to have that? And that's kind of the example that I give all the time is that it could be cool, right? But is it needed? So let me ask you this, Kent. What what has been the biggest waste of your time? You know, was there some big thing that you spent a lot of time doing that just didn't wind up going anywhere? Well, I mean, I could say that my biggest waste of time was uh, lost time and opportunity was raising funding for our company. I mean, it's absolutely needed. But I mean, when we, we started our company, it was back in 2006 and we got drug right through 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, the worst financial period ever. So, um, you know, that was everything really dried up from that standpoint. So it wasn't, it wasn't a waste. But it took a lot of my time to be able to try to raise funds, you know, and get funding into our company. I could have, you know, I could have with the ideas that are in my head and uh, and that we're articulating working with other companies, we could have accomplished, I think, a lot more in a shorter time period if we had, you know, had proper funding. But it's a necessary evil. I mean, it's something that you need to do. It's always a vetting of your product, your project and, and process. Whenever I met with a venture capital company or an investor, I always learned something. I always learned what they're looking for. I always, they always made me better, right, from that perspective of going through and saying, this is what you're going to have to look out for. This is one thing you're going to have to do. And I always valued that, that time with them. What's a way to get people to embrace an, an innovation? I mean, it's it's always very difficult to bring people along on your vision. Do you have any advice or or ways that I mean, obviously you're successful um, doing it. So what's your what's your secret? I I I would say with this the one thing I mean our health pal system took about three years to to create and you know many million dollars to create. And a lot of times it had to be done in a vacuum. Um, one of the things I had to do along the way is create, and I think we did very well, is create energy uh, with us. While we're waiting for a idea to germinate, I constantly put myself on stage. I constantly, uh, we were constantly winning awards, whether it was the Edison Award or whether it was other awards that are out there. We probably, Frost and Sullivan and others, we probably have 20 different awards we've had over the over. Uh, the life of the company, uh, featured in articles, you know, podcasts like this, CNN, you know, I was on Fox and all the other stuff that was out there to try to create buzz and to educate the marketplace while your innovation is coming out. And it was interesting. We constantly did, you know, a constant contact about once a month, once every uh, 90 days of like FDA clearances and appearances and everything like that. People started waiting for us and looking for us and cheering our successes as we went along. Yes, some people considered it spam, right, as well. But, you know, a lot of people, the 10,000 or so people that I had on my list, considered they, they missed that because we're not doing that today because we're bigger of a, a lot of a bigger uh, company. You got it, especially in the early adoption of an industry, you've got to create buzz for yourself. You've got to create momentum. And some of the things that I thought about with the next with the next gig uh, that potentially I do along the way is that you've got to you've got to show innovation pretty early. Um, you've got to get people excited. You've got to show the shiny bits you know along the way. One of the things that we did is we started with a smartphone and then we went and people love that and then we went over to a, a MDAM hub like device, which is less sexy, but it's a lot more cost-effective uh, to be able to do that. It's interesting the the human mind automatically gravitates back to the sexy and thinking, well, everybody's got a smartphone. Why don't we just use a smartphone? I We stopped doing the smartphone application and we started doing the hub. And if I would have done this differently in the future, I would have kept the smartphone application going along with the hub because the smartphone application, although it doesn't make the business model completely work, that's what the human brain latched onto to say, ah, that's the next logical place for us to go is using our smartphones to transmit information. So it's it, you need to give the shiny bits to people to kind of bring them along the way to get them sucked into your idea and keep them engaged. 
you said this uh, last time we spoke, and I thought it was really interesting. If you build it, they might not come. Right. So. <laughs> it's true, especially in this industry. So from your your niche where you stand, you know, what what's your prediction of how your corner of the world is going to look in the next two to five years? What do you think is coming? There is no doubt with me, and I'm not speaking as an entrepreneur with a lot of zeal and, and zealous that's out there. Um, there's no doubt in, in my mind that connected connectivity of myself to my doctor, to my health record, to the cloud is is going to occur. There's no doubt it's going to occur. There's going to be a lot of different flavors of it. I mean, we started with it. I mean, look how big Fitbit is now. I mean, it's a three, what is it about? $3 billion company now, um, or maybe a little bit larger than that when it started out a few years ago as an, just an activity monitor uh, that was along the side. And that is just for taking your steps. And I mean, calorie counting, I don't want to minimize Fitbit, but there's a lot of things that Fitbit does, but there's going to be a lot more of that. And I think what's going to occur over the next several years, which has already started a couple of years back, is consolidation of the industry. It's not going to be, it's not going to be good enough just to get an activity monitor. That activity monitor has got to come with a lot of different things that are integral to my needs on a regular basis to be able to make me engage and go forward with that. It, it's not enough to just have a pill dispenser or a blood pressure device or a scale. All this stuff has got to be integrated together into a holistic you know, solution that I can get value out of and use on a, on a daily basis. So consolidation is definitely going to occur. It's going to continue to be, I don't, I'm not going to say it's going to be a commoditization, but I think the hardware um, will definitely become more commoditized over the next two to three to four years. It's going to be the transformation from the data that comes from the hardware into back-end repositories through data mining and analytics that allows us to be able to generate services to better help me that's out there. Things have got to be more convenient for me. If I take my personal life, I know I'm sitting here right now going, you know what, I missed my doctor appointment last month for this. I missed my appointment for this. I want something, I didn't uh, refill my prescription a month ago, so I'm out of meds for this, and that's not a, a good thing. I need things that are around me, anticipating, listening to me, changing, that are more dynamic, changing to meet my needs. I need the nest of healthcare has got to start transforming healthcare out there. It's got to be learning and it's got to be connected. That's where I see us in the next couple of years. I am taking note. Okay. Is there anything that uh, I didn't ask you, Kent, that um, I should have? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Well, I really very much have enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stacey. I really appreciate uh, being with you. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, definitely subscribe in iTunes and leave us a rating and review, which would certainly warm my heart. I hope you'll tune in next week.